Tyson Alger here. Got a different guest today. I'm joined by Dusty. Is it Hera? 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 Hera like the casino, and uh, we'll go with that. Actually, actually, I just was reading a story about did your family once get sued by a casino because? Yeah, they did. Well, how did you find that out? I I do some deep dives. No, it it did. My family did get sued by the casino, and it's uh, it actually is like family, like several generations removed in crossing T's and dotting I's, but my dad owned a bar in downtown Portland, a nightclub called The Last Hera, and Hera's Casino sued him because my last name is trademarked, and so he had to change the name to The Last Hurrah. He just changed one letter in the sign. So so is that why you you were destined to be... (laughs) A daytime radio host because you can have like the first name and the you know Danny and Dusty. Like, That's right. Like, I, I feel like is is that are you contractually contractually obligated to only have your first name and your title? Look, I think I think I can use my name as long as it's my name. I'm pretty sure I can, but I feel like I was destined for sports radio in particular because I was literally raised in a bar and a locker room because my dad like when the, my parents brought me home from the hospital. They brought me my parents own Helvetia Tavern out in Hillsboro. Your parents own Helvetia? Yeah. Man, I I did not do enough research. <laughs> you found out our yeah. family got sued, so that was something. Yeah. But it was upstairs. There's a three-bedroom apartment, and that's where we lived for like the first two years of my life. So I was literally brought home from the hospital to a bar. And so my dad was a, a bar owner and then a football coach. He coached at Pacific University and Lewis and Clark College. And so I would go to practice with them every day. So I was literally in a bar and in a locker room. So I think I was destined for sports radio in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's we're recording this the day after the national championship game. And I kind of wanted to have you on for the aspect of uh, as the owner of a Substack and a podcast, like I'm kind of scared of January. You know, it's <laughs> it's, it's football. Football's over. You're still at the time of the year yeah. where college basketball is not quite like all in or out. And so I wanted to bring on somebody whose job it is to talk three hours a day, every day, <laughs> yeah. um, to like figure out how you do it, you know, like, like how, how do you attack a January? Like I, I, I'm assuming today was all college. Uh, you, you can probably milk three or four days out of the national championship game, right? Yeah, you can get, and that's, that's kind of the thing is you try to pull at the threads that make people think, right? And so the day after the national championship, it's all about the game. But then, you know, January and February, it's like people are starting to heat up to the NBA yeah. a little bit more. And like, you know, because Christmas is like the unofficial start of the NBA season. But the Blazers aren't really giving us all that much right <laughs> yeah. now. If we're being quite honest, if we, there's only so many, hey, what's the next step of develop, development that you can get? So you start like pulling at the threads of the college football playoff and what it means, right? Is Harbaugh going to leave? Where is he going to go? What's the Washington, you know, roster look like moving forward? And then... We also have these college football things that we can pull at with, you know, this is a new territory. Oregon is going to the Big Ten. You've got Oregon State entering this world of hybrid Mountain West-ish. Yeah, ish. And so, like, how's the roster building going to go with the transfer portal and and acquiring talent? And then, like, a big one with college football is going to be, like, the unrecruiting of your roster, which is, like, the dirty part that nobody's talking about with the portal is, like, you got to make room for these guys that are coming in somehow. Had had you guys mentally prepared for what today would have could what today could have been like had Washington won? Like what what would have the show been like today? I you know 
it's really hard because it's like you got this delicate dance where in Portland especially, we're in a market where it is ducks, beavers, cougars, and a lot of Husky fans too. It's driving on up here. You pass the Adidas building and I, you know, I remember when they announced that and, you know, they're un- unfurling like the big Adidas banner in the middle of Portland. I'm yeah. Like, Man, this is, this is a weird place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like, it, you got this weird kind of group of fan bases where like, if you were doing a, a show in, you know, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, like, yeah, it's going to be Alabama, right? Or right. Alabama all the time. But here we got these four fan bases and the river and having the, the boundary with Washington, the border being right there. It is, you do kind of have to dance on, on both sides of it, but we're the home of the ducks. Right. And so we can't like ignore that fact, but if Washington would have won, it would have been respecting what an incredible team it is because you can be a duck fan. You can be a Coug fan or a beaver, but watching Washington play this year, it was pretty damn special. Yeah. And watching Penix operate, like if Washington wins, it was Penix was operating at an insane level. Right. And that is something that you have to respect and kind of tip your hat at. And then, you know, you get ready for insufferable Washington fan because any fan base that wins a national title, I don't care who you are, you become insufferable. Yeah. And you earned that right <laughs> yeah. because they also went 0-12 not too long ago. And that's something that, like, I, I think that's what it the, – the preparation was for insufferable fan base. It, it, was, it was so fun watching – probably like the last five days of Oregon Twitter too, just like the infighting and yeah. um, I mean, just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Where did you stand on back the pack? Because I see the SEC every national championship, you know, chanting SEC and being super proud of that fact that like, Hey, I'm a Vanderbilt fan. And we get our teeth kicked in, but <laughs> go Georgia. Right. I don't think we're built that way. I, out here. I, I don't, I don't think it's, I, I don't think you could have done that in that specific instance because it's it's Washington is taking, I mean Washington's directly responsible for Oregon not being in that game and that, that was something I mentioned in my column today is you know Dan Landing was on College Game Day and I thought he did or on the kind of the, yeah. the the preview show and I thought he did a great job in that but it is it was weird kind of having him in the hey, this is how good Washington was role, like, on that set. And, you know, I had a couple people respond that, like, oh, you know, you've seen, like, Nick Saban in that role. But, like, also Nick Saban's beaten his rivals, like, many times. Like, yep. he's he's got a pretty, like, unassailable, like, spot within college football. And I'm not saying that was, like, wrong for Lanning to be in that spot. But it's, it's just, like, such a high-profile position when, you know, Washington yeah. is, is that team going forward. I'm so with you. And I was impressed with... Dan Landing, too, from the aspect of he was able to, one, go on there, not be nervous and not be too big in the moment. And actually, we saw a little bit of his personality come out in that analyst side because Dan Landing is a football savant. Like, we know how smart Dan Landing is. And no matter kind of what room he's in, he's often going to be the smartest guy in that room. But what I thought Lanning did a really good job of was being articulate with being able to connect the dots between how good Washington was. And then he also he's found his way to take his jabs because at halftime when he settled in, we saw his personality. Yeah, He gave us a little bit of that, 
you know, well, this is the defensive line for Michigan is really effective when they're not getting held all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> what, what was it like for you? So this, this season, this is part of why I wanted to have you on, was this was your first season doing sideline reporting for yeah. the Ducks. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you? I mean, like, you've, you've kind of been someone in this market for about a decade, but this yeah. was kind of a, a new experience for you in addition to, like, what you've done on the radio side. It was really cool. Um, and it was one of those things where, and I told, first of all, Jerry Allen, Mike Jorgensen, and Joey Mack, they are the best. Like, it, it does not get much better than, I, than those guys. I, I agree. Every single one of them are the most, like, nice people you can meet in this business. And they they welcomed me with open arms. And this year was a, a little bit kind of weird because I was only supposed to do it for, you know, like it was, hey, we need you for a while because Terry Johns had a health scare who, who is normally producing the broadcast and does the pre- and post-game shows. And... Um, Terry is doing much better now and you know I've never been more happy to like lose a job ever (laughs) (laughs) you know because I like Terry is an awesome person as well but it was a a pinch hit because Joey could do the producing in the pre and the post stuff Um, but they were as a guy who was just kind of thrust into it for I don't we don't know how long you're going to be doing it for it turned from a month into a couple months into the season and it was it was awesome, um, and I, I'm glad that Terry is doing better. And you know, they, I may not be on the sidelines next year, and that's awesome. But for those guys to welcome me in the way they did, it was it was really cool, and it was great. I've been interviewing college football coaches for 12, 13 years now, and it's never easy. Like even in designated times of this is a press conference, you just won a football game. You should be happy. Like you yeah. know, there's there's always yeah. like a dance to it, and I, I don't know if there's a, a group of people in the world who uh, can be ticked off more easily, you know, <laughs> in, 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 which, in which people yeah. circumstances. So so what I'm wondering for you is not that there was like a whole lot of like halftime times this year where Oregon was struggling or looking bad, but, you know, Dan's not the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for, giving uh, no. with his tell me how things are going in this game. What was it like kind of like prepping like kind of like that like live by fire like go talk to the coach you know it is that's the interesting part but because one thing i I do appreciate with with dan lanning and he made it super easy too because he knows the job like we were talking about with you know him going on the pregame and postgame and halftime of the national championship game the second year head coach right but he's been preparing to be the head coach so he knows kind of what the job entails and you don't get a lot. Uh, calculated is the way, like, he doesn't let a lot of information out. So it would be just the things that when you get those 30 seconds of interviews, right? And because I host the midday show in Portland, like, I'm not able to get down to practice and stuff. So before the Fiesta Bowl, you know, we were at the team hotel and I went up and I just talked to him, like, hey, man, like, we don't get to talk a whole lot, like, 30 seconds in and out, but. You know, I just wanted to make sure, like, you know, I introduced myself and I talked to you. And he threw me off in the Fiesta Bowl halftime interview because he walks up and he goes, hey, good to see you, Dusty. And it was the first time he'd done that all year long. And I was like, damn, he got me on that one and during halftime. But he understands the part of the job. So if things aren't going well, he knows what's not going right, what's going well for him. And so if you have to ask a question about, like, hey, you know, third down's been a struggle for your defense. How do you rectify that? He's really quick with, you know, short, concise, because he's been thinking about it and stewing on it the whole half anyway. So 
it was a lot actually more comfortable than the couple of games that I did with you know Mario Cristobal who when he was mad he was mad and didn't want to say anything really? it was like you'd be sprinting off the field trying to get your two questions in um, and that's part of it right like they're coaches landing he he would stop he'd do his interviews and then boom he was off I, I think I remember yeah I just have poor Joey anytime I think of him I think you know 20 30 years from now when I look back on this job and think about like Ducks games like I'll think of yeah. just Joey like soaked at like any, <laughs> like any given I don't even remember what specific game but it's always just like raining cold out you had to like go run down crystal ball because the ducks are down by like seven at you know it might have been a seattle game at yeah. seven at halftime and um a lot of respect for you guys because you know again like we we get to do it when it's all buttoned up and the game's over and um having to deal with those guys when they're still like in that coach zone is a little bit of a different animal yeah it, it would be really hard i mean i don't because of all the different interviews that you have because it'll be like there's games if there's tv local radio which is us and then national radio too like you'll have he'll have to do like three of those interviews separately during the halftime so like you'll get the hey you're going first second or sometimes like you're going to get him third and that's like a you're just kind of waiting in line because you know the big cameras they pay all the money they get the first shot at him and you get in a lot of these national games like taking the time to stop give a different answer I, and, and then all you want to do as a coach is you want to get your butt back in the locker room to, to either fix what you got, what you need to fix, or continue to move forward with what's rolling. Like, I, I, it'd be really weird if someone, like, you're writing an article and somebody just slides in, like, halfway through and is like, hey, <laughs> what, what do you think about, you know, <laughs> that, that quote that you were, got? Are, are, were, you, were you the type of person that, like, it, Let's say a year ago when you're watching like an NBA game and they pull Steve Kerr away and, you know, in the middle of the third quarter and then you kind of get your two questions in. Were, were you, are you the type of person that like saw, like enjoyed that part of a broadcast or, or like, like how, how has your kind of your view of like that part of a broadcast changed now that you've done it for a year? It depends. Like I, I always see it as like if the person, like Greg Popovich and doing those Popovich interviews, he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want to do it. Right? Like, and if, if they're going to treat you kind of that way, then, like, I don't see a whole lot of gain out right. of it. Right? But if you can get a little bit of a glimpse of something that happened in a game, good or bad, and that coach is willing to talk about that, then I think that it is worthwhile. And I, I do appreciate that out of Dan Lanning, especially, because he will give you something. It will be about a five-word answer. Yeah. But... If you ask him the right question, he'll give you an answer that that is good for you in the broadcast. This is a very wide-ranging question, but what's your favorite memory of just growing up around Oregon and, and, and being, you know, your dad, yeah. your dad's history and, and kind of growing up the son of a coach then too? Like what's... Yeah, my dad, so so my dad played at Oregon in the 70s, early 70s. He played with, he was Ahmad Rashad's backup. Um, in the 70s and he was friends with you know Dan Fouts and like I, I think that people forget how good they were like I mean they had like right before he Isn't got there it? Russ yeah. Francis was there and then like you had Norv Turner was the backup quarterback George Seifert was on that staff John Robinson was on that staff John Marshall who coached for the Seahawks for a long time was on that coaching staff like 
they had some really good coaches and players that came through at that time. And so my dad played during that time and then he went in, into coaching. And so we didn't get to go to like, I didn't go to a lot of Oregon games growing up because my dad was coaching. The first Oregon game I went to was uh, against Washington State and it was 92. So Drew Bledsoe, it was Drew oh, Bledsoe. It was like, that was a bye week. My dad took me down to the game and I remember like Austin Stadium was so empty like we could lay down, and I like took a nap at one point during the game. That, that, that's such a unique perspective to have because I've lived in Oregon since 2011, which yeah. has been you know since it's been the machine on. You know, I've I, I try to do a decent job of of going through the archives and reading. You know, uh, I'm glad you kind of mentioned like how good those teams were too, because that can be a blind spot I think because sure. you know in in recent Oregon history, it, a lot of times you talk about like '94 on. Um, but thinking about like Autzen as like not like yeah the event center is, <laughs> is wild to me. Well, I remember we just walked down on the field, and that's probably like my that was my it's my first game I went to. But it's the memory that I'll have is that near the end of the game, like I remember my dad was like, "You want to go down on the field?" And I was like, "Yeah." We didn't have passes. <laughs> there wasn't even a security guard. We just walked right down at, at the end of the game and watched like the final five minutes of the game. Like that's so sick <laughs> on the field, and it was just like. That was Oregon football back then. Uh, but, you know, you fast forward just a few years and, you know, three years later, they were playing in a Rose Bowl. And, like, I remember, like, watching the the, the, the 94 team and just being in awe of, like, these guys are guys that are from our area. Like, you know, Jeremy Asher's from Ashland. You know, Josh Wilcox is from Junction City. Like, that was something that was eye-popping to me because – we never had exposure to that until that Rose Bowl team of guys that are from our backyard are actually playing in the Rose Bowl for the Oregon Ducks. And that was that was a really cool moment for me. <coughs> Excuse me. It, it's I, I just wrestle so much with kind of grappling with like a lot of that history and like this Big Ten move then too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think... We all don't have to every time be like, and yeah, you know, like they had to make that move. Like, like we agree with it, even though like it, it does suck, but like, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to just see how everything is put 50 years from now in kind of the historical context of does this, this feel like a completely kind of like new era because like the, just the commercialization and like the complete, like, um, departure from not small time football, but like kind of that neighborhood, neighborhood, regional type of football is, is going to be fascinating. Well, yeah, that's like, it's, it's a crazy thing because the PAC 12 big 10, like that was the Rose Bowl growing up for you and I now, like my son is seven and he's like now getting really into football and it's like, trying to explain to him, like, yeah, well, the Ducks are going to be in the Big Ten. He's Most of his football fandom, the memorable years for him, is going to be Oregon only as a Big Ten football oh, team. That's, that's... And that is, like, something that's hard for me is, like, yeah, buddy, the Pac-12 is not going to exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember when my, my old beat partner at the Oregonian, Andrew Greif, um, when he left me for the LA Times and... He's got three young kids. Dude, it sounds like you got a divorce. Like he just packed up and I'm, left. I'm you. not happy about he's, it. I he mean, went like, and he's, covered he's, the Clippers. He's out there hanging out with Russell Westbrook, and <laughs> no offense, but <laughs> and here we like are. Like my, I gotta get a new talent booker. <laughs> but uh, I, I remember him just saying that like it's gonna be weird, man. Like my kids, like are like they're Californians. Like they're like yeah. they they grow up like. 
like his, I think they got like Angels and Dodgers and Anaheim Ducks and all that sort of thing. It's, I, 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 I couldn't imagine possibly having children and like them not being Mariners fans. Although I kind of don't want them to be Mariners fans because this has been a tough road. It's just pain. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of there's, pain. There's not a whole lot of enjoyment to it. No, especially when your owners are now saying they don't want to spend the money. Well, but that's a, that's a, you know, I've always said it'd be nice for the cable, cable guys to win one, one of these days. So. <laughs> You know they're not they're they're yeah. not raking us over the coals enough nearly yeah. enough, yeah. <laughs> how uh, how did you get into coaching? Uh, for for, yeah. for for people listening, you're an assistant coach with uh, a Banks High School, which I I love because my first gig uh, covering preps in Oregon was working for the Forest Grove Leader, and Banks was part of my coverage area. Um, very prideful community you guys out there and it is very very athletic too it is it's it's really cool um yeah that that came up like five years ago is when i started coaching out of banks and uh it it made for a busy fall this year with me you know doing the duck stuff and you guys had a pretty good football team this year too we did we did but i was gone a lot so my wife Lindsay, is a superhero handling all of our kids sports and stuff but I got into coaching at Banks. Uh, former Oregon Duck Cole Linehan is our head coach, and I grew up in Hillsboro. I went to Glencoe High School, is one one town over, and uh, one of my best friends that I played with starting in sixth grade is the offensive coordinator at, out of Banks, Jason Tufts, and I knew Cole um, from college a little bit in in high school, just knowing you know not too many. Pac-10 players come out of Banks. Yeah. Cole going to Oregon was kind of a big deal. So I was aware uh, of Cole, and, you know, they came to me after 2018. They won the state title, and they said, hey, we need a receivers coach. Would you be willing to do it? And that was right kind of when at the fan I was doing our Bymart game of the week, was no longer doing that. And my wife knew because, like, football's all I've known. Like, I mean, it was like I went to every practice, every game with my dad at Lewis and Clark in Pacific or Pacific First and Lewis and Clark. And so I was, like, it's been in me. My dad is, you know, I love the fact that he was able to foster that and I was able to be in locker rooms my whole life. And my wife kind of saw that I missed football a lot and she she said how much time is this going to take and luckily how, how honest were you to with that question I lied <laughs> I lied I was like ah you know it's like they they only practice like two hours a day you yeah. know and then you know and didn't really yeah, I mean it's almost like like putting out like a, a projected budget you that's know? right like everyone expects you to go over but yeah, you know? a couple hours yeah. every day and then you know games on Fridays but <laughs> I didn't really entail, like, we have game planning meetings on, you know, Sundays that we'll do, and we will go out and we have off-season weights that I'll be at, and we have a team camp that we go to, and we do it a passing camp out in Bend, you know. It takes up a lot of time throughout the year, but my wife was wholly on board with, let's do this. And I, anytime you are an assistant coach, what makes it great is if you have a head coach who understands what you're what you're going through at home too and understands like we're not trying to win the national championship <laughs> right we're you, you mean you don't have like a pillow that yeah. you bring to the office and, <laughs> that, that's know, right like, and we're, so, we're really gunning for the 4a title this year or the... it is like we watch uh, and so it is it's like a couple hours every day and my wife was on board with it and the thing that keeps me coaching and now it's on my fifth year is 
like you, you were right. We had a good team this year. We lost in the state championship game. We went undefeated, and I, I think that's the second state championship game I've coached in. I'm 0 for 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're 1 and 2 in, in state championship games. Cole and Jason are because they got one in 2018. But uh, it what keeps us coming back is one like our, we have a really good coaching staff and really good guys, and it is like some of my best friends from childhood to some mm-hmm. of my best friends now are, are coaching that staff, but. It's the it's the kids that keep you coming back in that community. It's a prideful community, yeah. and I don't know if you can cuss on this podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, or not. yeah go you for can. it. But it was my first year. I was like, you know, okay, we'll see how this thing goes. And I had a parent come up to me one day and goes, "Hey, I just want you to know that you can motherfuck my kid if you want." And I was like, uh, uh, "Thanks, yeah, I guess. Yeah, like yeah. that's not really yeah. my style." But it was like it's a it's kind of a throwback community in that regard to where it's like you don't i that's not who i am or who we are as coaches but it's like the parents are like hey we understand your best interests are for our kids to be good right yeah and that's not like every parent but it was just like the community wraps their arms around the support of that program and they are very prideful in it and we got some really good kids you hear horror stories and I have none of them in my five years. That, that was that was the thing that I liked about that job when I was covering banks so much was I, I think initially when I, I got kind of that beat like in your head, you're like, oh, banks, I got to go cover a small school. I want to be covering the ducks. Yeah. Um, but like the the amount of actual like appreciation I got for doing my job well, like at that time in my career probably brings me more joy than it does now just because. Like when you cover the ducks, like you're covering something that a million people cover and a million yeah. people cover it well. And it's, there's an, like, it's almost like it's like a privilege to be providing the coverage. Whereas, you know, like you'd go out in banks and like they back then they were so used to like just the Oregonian showing up at like Jesuit games or yeah. like central Catholic games. And for some odd reason, the Oregonian at the time decided to have me do just like banks and forest grow full time. And I covered that like the hell out of those teams. <laughs> but it was like, you'd walk into like the, like the gym, even for like, they, they had a really good girls basketball yeah. uh, team at the time. And, uh, you'd get like so many like waves and hellos and like, thanks for like writing that story last week. It was like super rewarding. It is a, it's a small community, but it's like, if it's a perfect place, like to raise a family now, right? It's small town. The whole town comes out on Friday nights. You got kids that are committed. You got parents and coaches that are all committed. And this, the district and the school just kind of rallies around. The whole city rallies around, you know, their sports. Not just football, but all of them. It's it's a really cool community that I lived, like, one town over my whole life. And I didn't truly appreciate <laughs> right. it until I got into it. Because it does remind me of, like, you know, Glencoe, where I went to school back when I was playing. And... It's just too big now. It's a it's a really small school, but it's a lot of fun, man. Not that banks per se was like putting a bunch of guys in like power five schools, but like like how have how have you seen just kind of the trickle down of like recruiting and and how everything has changed the last three four years with NIL and um, uh, transfer portal yeah. and and you know obviously you know you're not in the head position, but I'm sure you do have a pretty unique kind of view of of how recruiting are just kind of developing in high school. Yeah, we, we sent, I mean, Blake Goldbold just got done finishing his career up at Eastern Washington and he, he was a kid from 2018. He was a tight end. And then we got, you know, Charlie White, who's at Portland state now playing for Barney. And, uh, you know, those are like our D one guys. Like we don't have that, 
that kind of thing. But recruiting has changed completely because everything's digital now. Like you can, in whether it's big time guys where coaches, you make your connections and you can send film out immediately to a coach and you can send out a highlight film or a full game to, to coaches where they can watch like almost immediately as to where it used to be like a good old boys like phone network or it used to be like you had to have rivals or 24-7. Right. I think a, a great example of that is, uh, oh, I'm, I'm spacing on his name, the quarterback from Wilsonville this past year. Oh, shoot. Um, Coach Gunther at Wilsonville, he was working phones with all, all of the guys that, like, hey, I've got a kid who's flying under the radar, but he's <laughs> a D1 type. He just signed with Oregon State in the early signing period. Like, because, like, you can get that, that film to those coaches immediately. They can watch it. And even if it's a guy who slipped under the radar or was a late bloomer, like, you can get that out to them instantaneously. Like, 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 so, like, some, like you're going to get seen at some level in some, like, the, I feel like in the olden days, there was probably like a lot of like that kind of like the myth of like the the kid that just, <laughs> boy, I, I could have been the best in the world, but nobody came to my small town and now I'm just painting houses. <laughs> I wholly believe this. Like there's a guy in the mid nineties, uh, that I know a couple of these listeners will, will know Aristotle Thompson from Jesuit high school in like 94, like that guy, he was the best running back I've ever seen. And he ended up at Boise state. And I was like, that guy, to this day in my mind, like if if it would have been today's times, he would have been the Pac-12 running back. Like in my mind, I still think that he was he was legit. My 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 favorite thing about Oregon high school football is you do get some absolute elite athletes, but they're not playing against full teams of elite athletes. So <laughs> so so you're able to get like a bunch of like what looks like D'Anthony Thomas esque performances at times. And I remember. I was covering, it was when uh, Henry Mondu and Joey Alfieri were seniors at, at Jesuit. And to this day, I think Joey Alfieri is the best football player I've, I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> like, like there's a, there was this one game where Ken Potter just lined up, and I swear to God, ran him like 19 straight times over yes. two drives. And on the last one, Alfieri broke like a 40-yard run, pulled off his helmet, puked, and then like got in on like the special teams play afterwards. It was like... God damn, like, just perfect, like, high school football of, like, I got this star and I'm going to run him into the ground. <laughs> You're damn straight. And, yeah. like, that's that's the cool part about high school football. And that's, like, also with, like, me me coaching out at Banks, like, that's, that's the cool part about small high school football that I really love is that you get that small town feel back. And it's really cool. We got a lot of kids that work really hard, and it's it's a ton of fun, man. It is. Does does actually knowing football make your job harder when uh, you know you're just supposed to be a shock jock radio guy, man? Like we don't actually know ball. Like we're just you know supposed to kind of like talk out of our ass and have, like have opinions. <laughs> like like how how has coaching like uh, changed the way that you actually do your job? It's actually like it's one of those things that I. I wanted to get into coaching and do as well because like you you always want to learn right if you if you writer you want to read if you are in any trade no matter what you do you want to get better at it and you want to learn more and that's what coaching is is like it keeps things fresh it keeps concepts that are new you know in in the off season like when we go to a coach's clinic or something I'm taking in what is being said and like how teams are operating, right? Like we went down and we got to go to the the Oregon coaches clinic. And I remember it was during spring practices and I, I walked out and you guys were like, what? Yeah. what are you doing in this coaches clinic right now? Well, like it was an ability to learn 
with all the other high school coaches in the area, how Oregon operates their offense going in, sitting in position meetings, like it keeps things fresh and like you always do want to learn. Why do the college coaches do that? Is it just, they, just, just to show, you know, just to like be beneficial and kind of foster relationships between all you guys? I or? think so because okay. you never know when a kid's going to come through the, the program. And obviously if you're helping the high school area, the high school coaches, be better coaches. You're going to develop more talent in your own backyard. That's and point. that's yeah. always a good thing to have. And look, if you can go into a home and say, Hey man, like your you came and your coaches were in with us learning what we do and you run some of what we do. I think there's a lot of that. Um, it's really big in the South. I know that where like thousands of coaches will go, it, but it, it's really cool. It's like I, I see it as a continuing education. And to answer your question, it's like it it actually helps me because when I have to explain how you know defenses operate and how cover two works and how we want to attack cover two to high school kids, it really helps when you're ex- to explain it yeah. to a radio audience too. Kind of. I don't want to call it dumbing it down, no, no, but, but it, that, that's kind of what it is. Well, you, right? yeah, you're, you're you're trying to connect something to like the uh, common denominators, and yeah. you know, I, I feel like a lot of the diehards already know what they're looking for, or like have their opinions based, and um, they, it, it's almost like have you ever like had a day where you see a bunch of stuff on Twitter and you like think that's that's what everyone's talking about, and <laughs> you forget that only like five percent of the you know like population is actually on that stu- <laughs> exactly. stupid app. You know, only probably like five percent of like the football like audience that's actually interested in football like really knows like the like the super X's and O's. So I do feel like you kind of like for I, it's lucky for me because I don't know ball at all and and I don't try to approach it in a way of if you read my stuff, it's a lot more storytelling and not you know this is what Dan Lanning should have done. Absolutely. Um, but I, I I think there's there's kind of a delicate balance to it, and I I really do appreciate the people who are able to like teach you something. And show and like kind of show you that they know what they're talking about without like jamming it down their throat. <laughs> I'll know. tell you, it does though. Like going through it, and it has calmed me down with a lot of the, you know, they should have done this because, yeah. like, I'm on the smallest of scales, right? Like we're talking high school football, and it's like you second guess your calls. And the recommendations that you make and how chaotic it can be when you've got a 40-second play clock, you've got a crucial situation, and you have, you know, everybody's got a different idea of what you want to run. And when it comes down to it, the offensive coordinator getting the input from his guys and then saying, this is what we're going to do. Like, it it has calmed me down because it makes me take a step back and look at it and go, all right. How, what were they thinking and how were they thinking when they ran this at this certain time, right? Like, I went over this a lot in my head with the fourth down attempt at the end of the game in the Washington game, right? At midfield, where they ran the same concept that they ran on the goal line and Washington jumped in. I was like, okay, you know, how was that line of thinking going? You know, it was it just a play that had worked earlier and you went back to it? What was the, what was Washington showing that? Oregon thought that they could exploit for that second time, right? And you kind of go through and you go through these checkboxes of, damn, I probably would have done the same thing. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like... And that's that's the one thing that I don't like about kind of where media or fandom is these days because it, it has to be a polarized, 
this team screwed it up in this team. Yeah. And it was just like that, especially that first Washington game, there was so much nuance to that. Like I, th- like I thought it was both teams executing at an incredibly high level yeah. and one of the teams had to win. And that was, you know, I, I don't, I don't think, you know, granted that was months ago. Like, I don't think I came out and like outwardly like criticized that call some, I mean, it sucks that it didn't work, but yeah. like, you know, a lot of times you'll see on Twitter too, like the, oh, this like DB got, uh, beat in this coverage or so and so, and like I, I am just frightened of ever like tweeting that out and like having them like uh, that DB being like, actually, there was this was the coverage and that was that person's responsibility. And yeah, like, you have no idea what you're talking about because it's probably true, and so that's why I stick away from that type. Of- and, and that is the thing, though, is that there's so many people that just put things out there like that, and then they just like, nah, whatever, yeah. and they'll just survive, keep, survive in advance. They'll so. just keep going with it. And it's like. Man, like a perfect example of this is the national championship game last night with the Roma Dunes and Michael Penix, right? Pen on that fourth down, Penix throws a ball that kind of pretzels a wide open Adunze, and everybody's like, What a horrible throw by Penix. Well, I mean, Adunze probably should have taken that and he admitted afterwards, like, I was supposed to run a corner, but it was so open that yeah. I just kind of bent it more vertically. It's like Everybody was criticizing Michael Penix when he threw the ball where it was supposed to be thrown. And we've seen how synced that offense was yeah. succeeding, too. You have, like, little deviations from that. And it, it, that plays like that happen. And the the blame game, all of a sudden, fingers start getting pointed. Like, But people just move on from that. And it's like, was it a great ball? No. He was wide open <laughs> still. But it wasn't wholly Michael Penix's fault. And I think we, we miss a lot of that in the media yeah. now. And I... I I worry just how far down the rabbit hole we're gonna go. It 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 gets a little frightening, man. Like just just to, yeah. It just the, the so it, and this is funny being the guy who has a Substack and I I'm an internet blog, but like so many people have platforms and the ability to sift through like what's actually just like either fabricated or true or quality or not. Like it's it's only going to get harder. It's like really it's, hard. But hey, you know what? Pays, pays the bills, right? Is Portland a good sports town? Ooh, that is it, yes, yes, it is. I mean, it is a good sports town in that the Portland Trailblazers fan base is rabid. Like it is a good sports town. The Portland Timbers and the Portland Thorns, they they have more support than anybody else. Like look at it in that regard. We just don't have a lot of sports here. If we had a Major League Baseball team, if we had an NFL team, I think we would care about it just as much as we do the Blazers or the Timbers or the Thorns, which are renowned for their fan bases across their respective leagues, right? But we just don't have them. I I think that it gets dragged as a not a great sports town because you look at it and you say, because we don't have an NFL team or a Major League team, you look at the eclectic fan bases that are here, like... that's a gr- I think it's a great part about doing a radio show here is that we don't have to bang the drum for any specific team because it is truly a grab bag and it lets you allows you from a media standpoint to talk about what you feel is interesting like I don't care what happens on game 37 of a major league baseball season but you go to Seattle and they're beating your head with it like I'd rather talk about something else, and we can here. But from 
the NFL standpoint, I don't. We we get labeled as not a great sports town because, you know, people watch a bunch of different teams and they follow a bunch of different teams. So I think that that kind of hurts Portland in that regard. But I think it, it is a good sports town. People have perspective, which I think is good. I mean, we can talk about farts on the radio and, <laughs> you know, people still listen to that. How, how has, so you, you and Danny have been in the noon to three slot now for a year and a half. Yeah. And that was after you did, you had your show with AJ, yep. you had your show with Cam. Mm-hmm. Does it feel like you guys have some like kind of momentum and chemistry going? Yeah. I mean, what, what's it like kind of having some of that continuity? And also it seems like AJ's life got dramatically better after leaving you as a partner. That's I, right. I think she's surfing everywhere across the world. Yeah, um, she moved to Arizona. She moved to the desert and now covers every surfing event in the world. It's where, it's where I go to cover surfing. And I cannot be more happy or proud of AJ. It was really fun working with AJ. And like it was like, didn't know that you know everything was gonna gonna be uprooted after a year of doing a show with her. But you know that's life. Like that's the way that it works. And especially in TV, where people like bounce around a, lot, a whole heck of a lot more. But with Danny, like he's from here. He's rooted here. He is so dialed in and tuned into the NBA and the Blazers, especially. That you know it is a good. Like it sucks that the Blazers are going through this rebuild right yeah, now. Yeah. But he is. He's grown so much in the year and a half of like learning radios hard right like talking for three hours Dude, I'm, I'm really good at my job the the one time i went in and co-hosted with you when you guys were doing your film <laughs> yeah. like and i think i only did an hour with her yeah, yeah it was like an hour and a half might have been did. like an hour and a half yeah. i i couldn't form a sentence like it's it's hard <laughs> man like you i i feel like you've everyone's heard so much kind of sports radio and like you feel like how it should sound but i don't know how you guys are able to kind of put it all together in your head and have it come out of your mouth at the same time all without kind of a safety net and that's where i think like being with danny now for a year and a half like you build that rhythm like you build that you know he's he's grown he came in so much higher than most people who've never done like true radio before he came with his floor way higher but he's grown a ton. And I think like one of the biggest parts, and especially like you were talking, we started this with like January scary. <laughs> like our comfort blanket of college football in the NFL is we're seeing it like go away and the layers are being ripped off. Part of the thing is with the radio is like people don't like sports are aside, entertain them, right? And so the more you're willing to put yourself out there and, and share your story and share your life, I think like that is that's the big part that everybody kind of has to push through because once you get past that like you can talk f- yeah. for for 3 hours because it's not just like all right how are the ducks going to improve on third down you know how do they get over the hump over washington like you, you it's an onion you just got to peel back the layers last thing i want to get you out of here on is now that i know this growing up with the Helvetia Tavern as like in your family, was yeah. that kind of like growing up, like not knowing the Beatles or like, you know, it's like your parents are the Beatles. Like, can you yeah. really truly enjoy, you know, something that's so great if it's just what you've always known? <laughs> What's crazy about that is that, so after my parents uh, got a divorce, like my mom took over and she was running the tavern and my dad also ran uh, the river road house in Milwaukee. He owned that. And then the Carver hangar out and uh, on the way up to Estacada and Carver, uh, so that was kind of how they, they divvied things up in the divorce. 
uh, yeah, it was a little different because like you grow up in the restaurant industry and my dad's best friend through, through like my whole life is Steve Stanich who owns Stanich's. So it was like Stanich's and Helvetia was kind of the way like I, I grew up like they, and my dad and Steve Stanich coached together at Lewis and Clark in Pacific. No shit. Yeah. Steve Stanich was the defensive line coach. My dad was a receivers coach at those two places. And so like, like I grew up with both of those burger places and like the competition of best burger in Portland every year was between Stanich's and Helvetia and like nobody really knew they were best friends <laughs> like, they did like everything together and so it was it was a little bit weird in that regard of like you know having the bus drop me off at a at a tavern and like going in and just being like hey could I have a jumbo burger for like my post-school snack <laughs> it was a weird thing to kind of grow up with yeah <laughs> give, give me give me the difference between a Helvetia burger and a Stanich burger. So um, the the buns are are different. So the buns and the meat provider are provide meat provider is the same. I think it was Ponderosa meat for both. Um, but it comes down to one is the goop at at Helvetia, right? It, the goop, uh, the secret sauce there, which was actually. It was created by the guy who lived across the street from the tavern. <laughs> like, literally. He came up with it and was like, he's like, I got this for you, Andy. And he, my dad's like, all right, yeah. And my dad just, after he brought him goop, he dubbed him the mayor of Helvetia. Uh, Grandpa Bossick <laughs> came up with oh, goop. Man. And so goop is it. And then... You know, it's the seasoning on the Helvetia burger when they cook it. I think that's the biggest difference between them is how they season the burgers while they're being cooked. So you, Other than that, it's pretty standard. You, you weren't like sneaking over, you know, to the opposition and like getting a burger on the side and bringing it. Bringing Absolutely, it I was because my dad and Steve were always <laughs> together. Like Stanich and my dad were always together. So I was always at Stanich's oh, getting burgers man. and stuff. It was a unique childhood though, man. Like it, it really was. Like I literally grew up at the tavern and then in a locker room with my dad. Like, I look at it and I say, I'm so thankful my dad coached at Lewis and Clark College as opposed to, like, a community college because I think I still would have been around the players that much. But the fact that you have to have, like, a 3.8 GPA and, like, score 1,400 on your SATs <laughs> to get in there probably saved me a lot because a lot of my dad's former players, they were, like, my big brothers. And they would, like, take me on the weekends and I would just like they'd take me to movies with them. I I went to college parties far younger than I should have, <laughs> and it was like they they raised me. Like that was that was the way that they brought me up. So I'm I'm pretty lucky I turned out the way that I did, which is relatively <laughs> normal. But I'm really happy the experiences I had because I I think it kind of shaped me in the person who I am, like in my career path for sure. Well, shoot, Dusty, thanks for uh, taking the time and sharing all of that with, uh, <laughs> with, with the corridor today. I really appreciate it. Man. Yeah, man, I appreciate it. This has been a, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah.